the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast along with Matt Bates and Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're really glad that you joined us today. Uh, we have a very special guest. Robert Alter is uh, joining us. He's a professor of uh, comparative literature and also is a biblical scholar. And to say the least, it's published widely in this field. Uh, Drew will introduce some of that later. Uh, but we're focusing on his his massive Hebrew Bible with commentary project that he's been working on for 10 years, and that's culminated in a, a, a big old 3,500-page, uh, uh, three-volume set that I highly recommend. The It's got an, an, a very innovative and interesting translation of the Hebrew Bible uh, that reflects his careful literary sensitivities that he's been cultivating for the past 40 years, at least, um, with regard to the Hebrew Bible, and um, and a rich commentary, so you can kind of see the logic of the Hebrew Bible uh, from a literary point of view. And he's done more than perhaps anyone to really open up the field of reading the Bible's literature, both on the poetry and the narrative sides of the genre divide. And so it's, it's a real gift to have this this book now available. And and we're also looking at uh, his his book, the the Art of Bible Translation, in which he reflects on his commentary or his translation of the Hebrew Bible and the philosophy underlying it, and that gives you a kind of behind the scenes look at at how he came to translate the Hebrew Bible the way he does. Uh, so I I hope you enjoy uh, our conversation with him. Apologies for some of the audio quality because we were we had to work on a uh, ended up having to use a, a backup audio copy um so the his audio isn't the best but there you go um also special thanks to ed hackey for his help producing these episodes uh faithless uh, faithlessly faithfully that's the term i want each each episode and he's been very helpful and also to Tommy Mullman and Rebecca Terhune for their help on the marketing side of things. That's been super helpful. So thanks to all of you. Also, if you haven't had the chance to rate us on iTunes, blah, 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 all that stuff, uh, if you could do it, it actually is quite helpful. And then um, if you want to donate monthly, we will not stand in your way and would actually be very grateful to you to help uh, keep, keep this project going. So, and, and to let us know that you, you're there and appreciating it. Okay, let's get on with the episode. Enjoy. Dr. Robert Alter is the class of 1937 professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley. Both his awards and his achievements would take an entire podcast to read aloud. But most of our listeners will know him as one of the chief architects of the literary approach to the Hebrew Bible. With over two dozen books written and now a full translation of the Hebrew Bible into English released by Norton's Publishing this year. But today, Matt Lynch and I, hello Matt. Hey Drew. Uh, he and I are talking with Dr. Robert Alter today about his forthcoming book uh, with Princeton University Press titled The Art of Bible Translation. 
He was recently featured in a New York Times magazine piece where his speaking style was described as, quote, the amused tone of a veteran footnoter, end quote. Let's see if that holds true. Welcome, Robert, to OnScript Podcast. I'm happy to be here. Um, first of all, uh, we're, we're talking today again about the art of Bible translation. Uh, would it be fair to say that this book um, could have been a 125-page introduction to your translations of the Bible? In a way, it could have, right? <laughs> yeah. Could you, could you fill in a blank there? I... As I got into the, the trans, I began the translation out of a sense of dissatisfaction with the existing English versions of the Bible. And uh, the more I got into the translation, the more it dawned on me uh, where they had gone wrong. So um, I suppose by the time that, that, that I, I finished this big project, I could well have done this a book uh, as this short book, thank God it's short, uh, as uh, an introduction to my translation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is Matt here. Um, and I- I'm wondering if if you could just spell out for our, our listeners a little bit of what you saw as the problems with existing translations that warranted your project. Sure. Uh, I-, I would summarize it uh, in two ways uh, that it's uh, the modern translators of the Bible, who are, of course, uh, almost all committees, the Mm -hmm. ones who have done the whole thing, um, have a deficient sense of the Hebrew style of the original and a deficient sense of English style. Uh, Mm -hmm. So shall I expand on that? Yeah. Okay, Um, if you do a PhD in biblical studies at uh, Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins, the University of Pennsylvania, or in England, Oxford or Cambridge, obviously, uh, you're going to learn all kinds of valuable things for understanding the Bible, Uh, ancient Near Eastern history, the findings of archaeology, uh, maybe a couple of other ancient Near Eastern languages like Akkadian, or maybe even Egyptian. Uh, but you will never sit in a class where you're going to study, um, say, narrative technique in the Bible or, or uh, uh, the style of uh, biblical prose. As a result, when these learned people, and I respect their learning, I want to stress that, uh, sit down to put together a new translation of the Bible, they don't see anything, I shouldn't say anything, but they see very little of the stylistic subtlety and finesse or even the power of uh, the Hebrew, uh, which means, uh, well, I'll give you two examples, rhythm and the prose. Now, as far as I can tell, any good literary prose in the languages that, that I can read, there's a limited number, um, uh, is rhythmic. Uh, and 
they don't hear those rhythms because nothing they ever pay attention to in their training. And so they produce often arrhythmic English versions which wrecks the Hebrew. Uh, second, uh, let me take uh, the phenomenon of repetition. Now, repetition is an extremely important literary device in the Hebrew. Uh, the, the, uh, the narratives use, a, I think, a deliberately limited vocabulary, but uh, uh, by way of constant compensation, I would say, they take advantage of repeating terms, sometimes to highlight a theme, sometimes using the same term in two different uh, senses to, to make a, a specific point. And the modern translators imagine that um, repetition is boring and you have to vary things. So they're constantly using uh, synonyms, uh, uh, kind of prettifying the, the, the beautiful simplicity of the, the Hebrew. And by not being faithful to the repetitions, they're also not faithful to the literary shaping uh, of the original. Okay, that, that's on the side of the uh, deficient sense uh, of the Hebrew. On the side of the deficient sense of the English, there's something that baffles me a little bit. That is, again and again, I find in the modern translations by committee mm -hmm. that they have a tin ear for English. That they uh, promiscuously mingle different levels of style, uh, uh, one moment it's literally literary, uh, another it's like the daily newspaper, the third moment it's like a bureaucratic directive. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they often uh, twist or, or totally violate idiomatic usage in English. One can speculate why this would happen among very intelligent and... <coughs> learned men, I say men, not, not out of sexism, but as far as I know, all these committees were pretty much exclusively male. Um, maybe in England there were one or two exceptions, I'm not sure. Um, th these are learned people, presumably cultivated, but I think maybe the, the answer to my puzzle is that they're cultivated in a highly specialized way. You know, knowledge has become specialized, which wasn't true when the King James uh, translators uh, were working in the early 17th century. Now, knowledge has become specialized, a um, little bit like special teams in the NFL. Uh, you know, you have offense, defense, kickoff, and so forth. Uh, so, as a result, at least on the evidence of the English that they write, they are not much in touch with the literary language at its best that is now used. Uh, they don't seem to have read um, 
soul bellow or, or um, uh, uh, even Hemingway, uh, and um, and it shows badly in their translations. Mm-hmm. So that's what really brought me to do this, mm-hmm. and it also to do the translation and then to write the, this uh, short book uh, on translating the Bible. Yeah, I, actually, I thought the, the uh, it, it all clicked. I, I, I knew what you were up to, and I think anybody who teaches the Hebrew Bible, especially the people who don't read Hebrew, where you're trying to constantly explain what's going on in the text, and oh, we don't have a way to say this in English, and um, it, it was when uh, you mentioned Hemingway, and, and then all of a sudden I thought, okay, well, there's somebody who uses staccato and uh, rhythmic language in a way that... Uh, that and and parallel clauses yeah, with that, yeah, I, like the yeah. King James Version, yeah. Yeah, so maybe I could ask you, uh, for, uh, that, that example, I think, is a part that it's very difficult. I was talking to some students about your work um, this week, and I, and I just said, well, the, you have this thing in the, in the Hebrew, the Vayaktol, where an and is placed at the beginning of so many verbs. Uh, and, and when I began to describe the breadth of this use, they almost sat in disbelief, you know, how many ands can you possibly jam into a piece of prose? So how, how do you see that? Um, what's the difference between what you're doing with those Vayaktols, which is just the adding of the and or a but at the beginning, uh, and what you see with common English translations by committee? Well, w- what the uh, committees do is they uh, restructure the syntax as normal, and I say normal, not really literary, but like newspaper, magazine prose. Uh, so uh, where uh, you have a sequence of clauses in the Hebrew that will, uh, and Abraham did this, and Abraham did that, and so forth, uh, as a sequence of parallel clauses, what is technically called uh, parataxis, that is parallel syntax, they um, reassemble it and we have since, because, although, however, and, and so forth, which breaks the rhythm of the Hebrew and also introduces explanatory language when the Hebrew doesn't mean to uh, explain. Now, um, I had an exchange, I mentioned this in uh, The Art of Bible Translation, with a, an old friend of mine who is a, a fine biblical scholar. Uh, I sent him my Genesis, which came out many years ago. And he had been a member of one of those committees that, that produced a new translation. So obviously, their philosophy of translation was very different from mine, and he clearly disliked my, my version. He tried to be tactful because we were friends, but uh, he expressed considerable dissatisfaction. And one thing he said was that the English language doesn't tolerate the repetition of and in this fashion. <clears throat> you know, you can do it in biblical Hebrew where there's it's not even an independent word, but a particle you put at the beginning of the word that means and. Um, but you can't do this in English. Now, I answered him, because we all have the, 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 uh, the model of Hemingway in mind, but to take another early 20th century writer, uh, I answered him that, look, I've spent a lot of my career 
focusing on style in, in English fiction. And I can assure you that especially since 1611, parataxis, beginning the sequences of sentences with Anne, is a, an available option for good writers. And I mentioned um, the um, Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of James Joyce's Ulysses, which I think is the finest piece of extended prose poetry in the English language written in the 20th century. And Molly is constantly and, and, and. So it, it, it can be done, but they don't recognize that it can be done. So um, you were a real pioneer in literary approaches to the, the Hebrew Bible. And um, just backing up for a moment, um, I remember I was in this is probably like late 90s i was in a used bookstore in in denver and i was just kind of getting interested in biblical studies and i and i saw this book called the art of biblical narrative and i picked it up and i bought it and i thought this looks kind of interesting and i read it and it absolutely it really blew my mind i'd never i'd never thought in those terms before about about the hebrew bible so um, just to kind of set the scene for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the, the kind of emergence of literary approaches to the Bible, how did you get into taking the insights from, you know, literary criticism, applying them to the Bible, and who are some of the forerunners in that, in that field? Okay. There certainly were forerunners. That, that is, I've seen in the press from time to time that, that I was the one who created the literary approach to the Bible. That's not really not, not accurate. In, our own, in the previous century, uh, the first chapter of uh, Eric Auerbach's Mimesis, which is a comparison of a passage from Genesis with a passage from the Odyssey, uh, that really paved the way in, in, uh, in many respects. And his argument is that, that basically it's not Homer, but the, the biblical narrative that uh, leads us to the kind of realism of everyday life that we have in the novel. Uh, but th there were people before um, Auerbach going back to uh, the... the uh, the 18th century, there, there was Robert Loth, a, uh, an Anglican mm -hmm. bishop, yeah. who, who discovered the organizing principle of semantic parallelism in poetry, and and uh, there were a couple people in Germany as well. Uh, so, what led me to this mm -hmm. was... I had well. I, I started reading the Bible extensively in Hebrew when I was around 18. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was I was an English major at Columbia College at the time, uh, and I was enchanted by biblical narrative. But I thought I can't explain what makes it so great. I mean, it, it, it seems so simple and spare. So I kind of put this uh, in a mental drawer uh, and more or less forgot about it and went on to do my doctoral work at Harvard in comparative literature, working in the modern period, well, modern 18th to 20th century at the time. And uh, after I'd been 
15 years into my career, uh, and I, I read a couple of suggestive articles in Hebrew, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I can begin to explain what's great about these stories, uh, why those seemingly simple, that they are actually very complex and subtle. And at the time, I was uh, a regular contributor to um, a magazine from which I separated many years ago called Commentary, which when I started writing for it was a, a leading uh, intellectual journal, and it, it kind of became a bit sectarian politically uh, uh, over the years. And so I was always uh, scrounging around to come up with topics because I, I owed them in principle three or four articles a year as a contributing editor. And so uh, I said, maybe I should try something on biblical narrative. And um, I spoke to the editor with my memory. He said, how would you guys like a piece on the necessity for a political, I'm sorry, for a literary perspective on the Bible? Mm -hmm. I said, sure, well, give it a try. So I, I wrote this article, sort of scolding biblical scholars for spending all their time hunting <laughs> down <coughs> loan words in other Semitic languages. Mm -hmm. And not knowing how to read a story. Uh, and then I thought I would demonstrate how to read a story. So I, I did a close reading of Genesis 38, uh, which is after Joseph is sold mm -hmm. into slavery by his brothers. Uh, we have what seems to be a total interruption of the main mm -hmm. story. Uh, and that's the way it's usually described by scholars which is the story of Judah and Tamar, how uh, he, she marries one of Tam Judah's sons who dies, and then a second one dies, uh, and so he, he leaves her uh, languishing, uh, although by law he's supposed to pass her on to the next son in line. And she takes the law into her own hands, dress, disguises herself as a roadside prostitute, has sex with him, and conceives twin sons. <coughs> now, uh, what I showed at the time was uh, that there was a, an elaborate network uh, of connections by theme and even language between uh, the Tamar Judah story and the Joseph story, and it was by no means an interruption. And if you saw the connections, you saw a certain depth in the story that you wouldn't have realized otherwise. Well, I thought that this would be a one-off. Uh, you know, I get this. I got this off my chest. I scolded the the, the Bible scholars and so forth. Instead. Uh, I got an outpouring of letters, some to me wow. personally. This is before email, of course. Uh, it was in the late 70s. Some were to me personally, some to letters to the editor. So I thought, gee, people are kind of enthusiastic about this. Uh, I'll, I have a few more ideas on biblical narrative. Uh, I'll write a second article. And so I ended up writing, say, four articles for, uh, I think, uh, two or three different journals. 
Uh, and at that point, I was in full momentum. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I can do a book on biblical narrative. Uh, and uh, that, that, that came out in 1981, The Art of Biblical Narrative, which you yeah. mentioned. And amazingly, it's been in continuous print ever since. So that's like 30, wow. s- 40, over yeah, 30, 40 years. years. Yeah. yeah. And uh, part of the reason I have to say is uh, that it did, I had not had this in mind at all, but it did get adopted uh, as a text for various, uh, it's not like, um, uh, writing the definitive text for Economics 101, in which without the case I'd be a rich man, but uh, <laughs> but it, it keeps selling a few thousand copies every year. You might call it a slow-motion uh, bestseller, because after all <laughs> these years, it adds up to definitely over 100,000 copies. <laughs> and, and it's been translated into, I don't know, half a dozen languages, Mm. Uh, including a couple of exotic ones like Chinese uh, and uh, um, I don't know Hebrew, uh, Hebrew of course, and Portuguese, uh, French, German. Uh, so uh, I, I was very happy with this, and I, I should add the following: that I thought, well, that's it. You know, I'm not a Bible scholar, although I know biblical Hebrew quite well. And uh, uh, I finished with this. But then there was such a good reception to the book that I thought, well, why not a book on biblical poetry as well, which I I did Mm -hmm. about uh, four or five years after the narrative book. And by that time, I I was sliding rapidly down the slippery slope uh, into (laughs) biblical studies. Although um, I I should stress that that, uh, I never abandoned my interest in modern literature. Uh, And uh, I wrote books uh, uh, addressing um, uh, Kafka, um, uh, contemporary American uh, novelists, and so forth. Um, Wow, that's fantastic. so thinking about the the translations and then this this book, which is kind of the prolegomena as, as to how you're thinking about translation, um, I, I noticed, uh, well, when I think about something like you, you, I, you left uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message off to the side, you kind of give him a cutout right there in the introductory chapter, which I thought was interesting. But I, I always think of Eugene Peterson's The Message as um, written to my, you know, my dad, a baby boomer, a white guy, a Protestant. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, you can kind of see by the colloquialisms he uses that a lot of my students wouldn't understand, but my dad would, and I've heard him before. Um, so I, I wonder in your translations or your, or your, your book here, like who is your audience? Who are you writing to? Uh, and how did that shape uh, how you translated uh, maybe a particular passage that you might have done otherwise if you were translating it to Israeli, uh, Israeli Jews who speak English? Okay. Um, now, for just a quick word about Eugene uh, Peterson. Um, I don't denigrate what he's done. And in terms of audience, I'm glad you raised the, the issue of audience. He, of course, is... Um, uh, addressing uh, devout Christians, uh, mm-hmm. probably a, of a more or less evangelical nature, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But I, I know that 
he has sold very well, spectacularly well mm -hmm. in the Bible Belt. And so I can see the point that, that uh, for these readers, the Bible is the Word of God, and he wants to make the, the, the Word of God as um, immediate and as uh, 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 accessible as possible. So he, he uses very colloquial American English. Like, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, he, um, what does he have? He has, give us uh, this day three square meals. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Uh, now, I, I, I would, uh, as a translator, I, I see the purpose of it. And uh, I respect the purpose in a way. But as a translator, I would say that, that that's a kind of adaptation translation of the Bible rather than a straight translation. Now, for, for the readership I had in mind, okay, I'm a literary person, and I was, of course, zeroing in on the literary uh, fashioning uh, of the Hebrew so I, I guess I had in mind, first of all, um, people of a literary bent of one sort or another who were coming to the Bible. And in fact, what my genesis has often been in, adopted in sort of great books courses, uh, where uh, it seems to be the translation of choice and uh, uh, making the the, uh, the literary art of the original accessible to students. It's a different kind of accessibility from Eugene Peterson's. Um, but then I, I found something surprising and instructive for me. In the age of email, which people are much uh, more want to... Um, communicate with uh, authors than they did back in the age when you had to put a stamp on a letter. And um, uh, and anybody can find my email by simply going to the comparative literature site at UC Berkeley. Okay. So I've gotten, I, I would say over the years, hundreds of, of emails um, sometimes people write to quarrel with a particular translation choice. Or, well, okay, that's fine. And either I disagree or occasionally I, I agree. And I try to respond briefly to all these things. But what surprised me was that I got many, I have gotten, because it's continuing, I've gotten many enthusiastic emails from seriously religious readers, uh, some modern Orthodox Jews, uh, but um, a lot of Christians, uh, ranging from, let's say, an Episcopalian nun to a Presbyterian organist uh, to um, uh, Methodist uh, ministers and so forth. Well, just about two weeks ago, I got a wonderful email from a, a, a man now in his 70s and retired who was uh, um, ordained in the Church of Scotland. 
and 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 worked as a, a minister uh, all his uh, life. And he said that he and his wife had uh, each time, time you know, in the UK there have been uh, I think at least four different new translations by committee. So each time one was announced, they looked forward with great eagerness, and each time they were bitterly disappointed. Mm. Um, and uh, then his, his, his wife gave him my three-volume translation of the Hebrew Bible as a present. So um, he began to read it, and he was tremendously enthusiastic. Oh, I, I, I forgot to say that this is a man who studied four or five years uh, of um, biblical Hebrew in seminary, so he knows whereof he speaks. And he says, for the first time, you can hear in English what the Hebrew sounds like. Mm. And so I, I, from all these communications from readers, mm. I learned that, that there are many religious people, uh, and in particular religious Christians, who are eager to hear the Bible in a different way, in, in a way that... that that honors the the, um, the literary power uh, of the Hebrew. So, focusing uh, on the literary does not mean excluding religious readers by any means. Yeah, and I, I wonder too if um, it's interesting you bring up ecclesiology. You know, the people from um, uh, the Peterson translation being for um, people who want the to hear the Bible immediately speak to them. Um, I think there's probably a parallel in ecclesiological preferences. So on the one hand, you have people who, who want a church environment, a religious environment that connects with them right where they're at. It's, it's relevant. And then others, on the other hand, that want to enter something that's other, that's mysterious, that's different. So I think your translation really captures that hunger that people have to enter into something that's different. And, and, and in some ways... Um, you know, speaking as someone who does believe in the Bible as the Word of God, um, it ha- there has to be an, an other to speak to you. You know, like it, it can't just be immediate. Um, you know, that there has to be some retaining of that distinctiveness. So it, um, I could see why it has that appeal. Oh, that's very nice. And I, I, I would add to what you say uh, something about my experience as a teacher. Now, over the, I mean, I, I from time to time have taught biblical texts uh, in uh, here at Berkeley, but uh, most of my teaching is literature, and what I, I, I love teaching, and even though I'm technically or formally retired, I still teach one course a year, and what I discover again and again is that. Your job as a teacher is precisely the sort of, you know, beyond the Bible, is precisely the sort of thing that, that you've just so aptly described. That, that, that is, you introduce students to uh, writing that's going to seem strange and challenging mm-hmm. to them, and you try to find ways to guide them into it to realize, so that they can realize that the, the strangeness 
is actually justified and is important. Well, I had a, uh, we had uh, John Levinson on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. Actually, it, it'll probably have aired by the time they're listening to this episode. But um, I asked him, hey, do you have any questions for Robert Alter? Uh, and so he, he could only come up with one. <laughs> So okay, I'd like to hear so, that. So um, here was his question: What made you want to translate the supposedly non-literary portions of the text, the list, the descriptions of sacrifice, the laws? Um, did you find anything surprisingly literarily of value in those um, things that you translated? To be honest, no. I, I mean, th- th- this goes back to um, early on in my project um, after I had uh, published two volumes of Bible translation. My editor asked me w- whether uh, uh, I might consider doing the whole thing. And I said, oh, give me a break. Uh, but uh-huh. but uh, I, I, it took quite a while before I realized I could do the whole thing. Uh, but th- then he gave me a counter-proposal of doing the five books of Moses. And I hesitated for a few weeks uh, think well. There's Leviticus right smack in the middle of it, uh, and um, my wife encouraged me to do it. She probably wanted to keep me off the streets, uh, and 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 my my best friend here, at Berkeley, who uh, was a brilliant uh, literary scholar. So you should do this. You don't have another project now. So. Uh, I did the five books of Moses, uh, and I have to say that that when I got to Leviticus, I kind of slogged through it. Mm. That is, uh, I'm not much, I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm not that big a a meat eater, and uh, I I don't even particularly care to go into butcher shops. uh, So all these instructions about how you, you... slice up the animal for sacrifice and so forth, did, did not speak to my heart. Um, but uh, so uh, the sections that John Levinson asked you about, um, uh, I did because um, I had, was committed to do the whole. First, uh, the, the whole of the five books of Moses, and then toward the end of my project, the whole of Chronicles, which is certainly the least interesting book in the whole Hebrew Bible. There Um, there are some people having a myocardial infarction after you said that right now, listening to us. (laughs) The Chronicle scholars out there. I do love it that your friend uh, said, hey, you've got nothing going on. Why don't you just go ahead and translate the entire Torah by yourself? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a friend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with commentary. Yeah. With commentary, yeah. Well, he had to pay the price for this because he was reading the drafts of all my translations, so he had to read the draft of Leviticus. I'll tell you one more thing about Leviticus. When my Torah translation came out, I met a kind of distant friend. We don't usually see each other. And he says to me, listen, can you tell me, do you think that your translation of Leviticus put more zip into it? And I said, listen, I I have to tell you, I don't think it did. Uh, About the only thing I would say is is this. Uh, um, As you know from uh, 
my uh, book on translation, uh, for various reasons, I uh, resist modernizing in translation. So the, there's very little in the way of technical vocabulary in biblical Hebrew. So when you have uh, uh, elaborate instructions for how the, the priest has to examine people and even houses to determine whether the disease that used to be translated as leprosy, but now nobody thinks it was leprosy, uh, how that was uh, uh, um, uh, done. Um, I, um, I avoided using terms like inspect. When the Hebrew just says uh, to see or to look, and and I thought, well, if it was good enough for the ancient writer, it's good, it's good enough for us. And I don't want to give the impression that this is like coming to a modern doctor's office and undergoing blood tests and all sorts mm -hmm. of other. I'm conscious that we're coming to the end of our our time, and I'm I'm wondering if you'd be up for what we call a speed round, where we ask questions and you have like five seconds to answer. Sure. Okay. Uh, Drew, do you want to kick it off? Um, have you ever been kidnapped or participant in any kind of insurrectionist activities? No. <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, how about this one? Now that you had this big New York Times piece come out with that striking photo of you um, with those deep blue eyes, are you getting recognized on the street more often? Yes. This startled me because I'm not used to being a, a, a celebrity, but at least here in Berkeley, People I didn't know have been stopping me in the street uh, and saying, hey, congratulations for your translation. <laughs> I had a feeling that might be the case. Okay, here's a more technical speed round question. Attending to the alliteration, repetition, and parataxis, how would you translate the following sentence into modern Hebrew? Buffalo, 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 buffalo. I would translate it the by re repeating, let's see, what's the modern Hebrew word for, 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 but I think it's just buffalo. So, it is actually buffalo because yeah. I, there's a beer or something that has buffalo on it. I saw right, transliterated yeah. one time. Um, are you afraid at all that your work might serve to embolden the uh, KJV-only splinter militants uh, uh, to create some kind of Elizabethan coup d'etat amongst Bible translators? Oh, I don't think that would, that would, I mean, the, the KJV militants, uh, uh, there is at least one group in there that believes in the inerrancy of the, the King James Version, and that's not going to go too far because the, the King James Version, alas, is full of mistakes. Yeah, well, Drew, I mean, you got to walk carefully there, Drew's, a, Drew's one of those. Yeah, I'm King James only, it's King James or die. <laughs> um, okay, so I've got a knock-knock question. Um, knock-knock. Who's there? Two. To who? To whom? Oh, okay. <laughs> you caught me. All right. Um, okay, so knock-knock. Uh, Who's there? Cantaloupe. Cantaloupe who? Cantaloupe. I'm already married. All right, you, you've... Those are horrible. Oh, I know. Well, I like the... You know, come on, Drew. You got you got to keep it, keep it light. Um... 
so what do you think is the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Um, well, that, that, that's a hard one. Uh, let me see. Um, okay. There's a book that's actually a little bit indirectly uh, about the Bible mm-hmm. um, called The Eclipse of Biblical mm. Narrative by Hans Rai. Yeah. Yeah. It just sets in, in a very instructive um, uh, framework because it, it's as much a, a study of intellectual history as of the Bible. How we, we came to ask these questions which are a, exclusively historical of the Bible. It, did it happen or didn't happen? And so we forgot how to read the Bible as what he calls history-like. And that's a beautiful formulation. Mm, yeah, I'm actually surprised no one has mentioned that book before because we we do ask that question a lot. Um, all right, one of your major contributions to biblical studies and especially literary approaches to the Bible is the identification of type scenes in the Bible, and in particular the meeting spouse at well type scene. Um, so for our listeners longing to meet that special someone, do you have any tips based on this biblical trope? Life, if, life if they tips. want to meet a spouse, yeah. like do you do you have any you know given your experience in in uh, you know identifying the well type scene, do you, would you recommend um, how how they could meet a spouse? I don't think that would would ha- well. Let me put it this way: the, meeting a, a spouse at a well, it's always in a foreign mm. uh, land, um, mm. w- made sense because. Um, uh, that's where the young women came to um, uh, draw well, draw water from, from the well. So if you wanted to oh, see, I can a, see where this is going. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> if you wanted to see an, an eligible young woman, uh, there's there's beautiful Rebecca coming down w- with her pitcher to to draw water. Mm-hmm. So uh, you would have to. Um, Find something like a singles bar to, to be the equivalent of that. Or or a barn with a nice trough. Yeah. Well, I was thinking like if they – so they would have to – so you would recommend traveling and going to maybe a borehole in some foreign land, right? Travel uh, – you know, get, get out of the, the constraints of your family of our origin. I think that's mm-hmm. part of the, the whole thing of going to a foreign land and see what, what – uh, good women there are out there somewhere in the beyond. Okay. And to be clear, uh, OnScript does not endorse wife napping in a foreign country. Yeah, that, that's good clarification. Um, what's uh, one piece of advice you'd offer to early career scholars of the Bible? Well, I, uh, really, I, I would say that, that if you're a scholar of the Bible and, and you're taught in uh, your uh, doctoral program, say, how to look for cruxes in the Bible and how to try to solve them, or um, uh, how to uh, determine the different layers of of the text. I would say, okay, that's important work, but don't stop there. Uh, There are amazing things going on in the redacted texts that, that, that we have and try to be alert to those amazing things. Um, 
so I think we're, we're probably at the end of our time, but um, how do you hope that your, I think you've addressed this a bit, but how do you hope that your Bible translation is going to be accessed and used? Well, I, I, I hope that, that, I would say two things. I, I would hope that people who are curious about the Bible maybe haven't read that much of it or been put up, put off by much of it, will sit down and see that it's a, a great collection of books. Uh, I, I would also think, in, in line with what I said earlier about uh, religious readers who have written to me, that, that many people who uh, are um, committed to one faith or, or another would find that this book that's central to their faith uh, can be read in a way w which shows dimensions they weren't aware of. Well, Dr. Robert Alter, thank you very much for carving out this time in your day and, and turning down other phone calls from the White House and various other people uh, to spend this time with you. It's been a pleasure, and um, we truly appreciate uh, the kind of gift of your scholarship that you've given to us that has uh, formed us and shaped us in our scholarship as well. Well, yeah. thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. Okay. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.